0: Welcome to the Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, Professor of Engineering Education in the College of Engineering at Purdue University. In Research Briefs, we'll speak with engineering education researchers about what their lives are like, what we're finding out, and how their research is being used. I'm excited to have as guests today on Research Briefs, Dr. Marie Peretti, Professor of Engineering Education at Virginia Tech, and Dr. Shane Brown, Professor of Civil and Construction Engineering at Oregon State. Marie and Shane are the founding co-editors of a new journal called Studies in Engineering Education, which is abbreviated S-E-E, and which we will refer to as C. like seeing, Um, Today, I've asked them to tell us more about their new journal, particularly the kinds of articles they're interested in publishing. Um, Hopefully, that will spur people to submit. And I'm also very curious about what is it like to start a new journal. So we'll be talking about both of those things. Welcome, Shane and Marie. I'm glad to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having
2: us. Yeah, It's a delight to be here, Ruth.
0: Well, it's a delight to have you both. I've been very um, curious about the journal, and so I'm being nosy and letting the whole world know the things that I'm nosy about. Hopefully, uh, other people are curious as well. So can you start by uh, giving the listeners some context about studies in engineering education or as we're going to refer to it, C?
1: Sure, I, I, I'll just start, okay. Um, I guess. And I would say our big focus is on what we talked about as interpretive research. And there's a lot of meanings for that. So I think as we go through this conversation, our interpretation will become clearer. Uh, we started actually thinking about calling the journal QC, which would be Qualitative Studies in Engineering Education. And then I think we realized that QC would be sort of constraining because then it's only qualitative studies that would be published, and we didn't really, uh, we didn't really aspire to have a constraining journal. We aspired to have a journal that would like explore territory that hadn't been explored before. So we changed it to uh, studies in engineering education and focused on interpretive research, which you know loosely we consider anything that's sort of analytical or evaluative or interpretive. So we would, as an example, we would entertain a quantitative study, but it needs to be more than quantitative analysis and quantitative results. There has to be some deep meaning that's made or analysis of what those might mean to a a larger setting or a theory. We're interested in papers that describe theories and analyze theories and their value and use in engineering education. So we, we have this idea of interpretive research that allows us, I think, to focus on being um, sort of nonconforming and sort of uh, d- uh, encourage new paper types that may or may not be good fits for other journals.
0: And Marie, I, I know you uh, had the idea for this journal. And do you want to tell the listeners a bit about kind of how that process happened and a little bit about the timeline?
2: Sure. Um, I think, you know, when I came back from my first sabbatical, which everyone out there, if you haven't taken one, you should take a sabbatical. I Um, agree. Fabulously generative time. Um, But came back and... was actually talking with Donna Riley quite a bit at that time about sort of the need for more journals in the field, the constraints of the journals that we had, what could and couldn't get published. Um, and somewhere around sort of 2016, um, I started thinking more about the idea of, of additional journals in the field. Um, and one of the things I think we've chatted a little bit about is just, you know, the field has grown a lot from its early days. When there were, you know, at first there were no PhD programs, and then there were two, and now there's many more, and there's more scholars in traditional disciplines working, and the the journal growth has not, I don't think, kept pace. So there's so there's a sense of a need for more, but also different kinds of journals. So started thinking about it in 2016, and also that's about the same time I got really interested in issues of open access and publishing, and um, the press at Virginia Tech, VT Publishing, is an open access. Um, publisher. So that's the, that's the way we do all our publishing and it, and it's all on Online, so started talking with them. And then in 2017, Shane and I—I I think at ASCE or through emails—started chatting together about this idea. And Seems like that's kind of bizarre, but woo! You know, <laughs> hey, I, you know, I'm game. I, mean, I sort of feel like you know Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. Hey kids, let's put on a show. I mean, um, <laughs> hey kids, let's start a journal. So, so we we really I think started talking. Seriously, in 2017, Um, and then there were a couple of years worth of what does this mean? What it's going to look like? What's our mission? How is it going to work? Sort of all of those logistics. We we finally officially launched. Um, in at ASCE in 2019. That's when we went to the ASCE conference with our little flyers and handed them out and the website went live, um, which is cjournal.org. So just seejournal.org. journalorg all one word there. Um, but you know we went live that summer and then our first article was published in right after the pandemic started in march of march april 2020 something about that and we're currently so we have we have a first issue that was sort of an open issue and then we launched the special stud the special issue on um, theories and methods in engineering education research. Um, and that, we got such great responses turned into a double issue. So the first one is complete. The second one is finishing up. But we're, we also have um, another issue coming out of just regular articles. So the, the pandemic kind of threw our timelines of issues in a little, into a little bit of disarray. In general, um, the goal is two issues a year. So, you know, close one issue around June, close the second issue in, in December. But articles, since we're uh, open access all online, articles are published online as they are accepted and typeset and ready. And then we close the issue once we hit six or eight articles.
0: And so open access, I know that was very important. Uh, and can you... Explain for people who might not know what that means, what open access means. I mean, you don't have to pay for it, right? The reader can find it.
2: Yeah, open access. So if you talk to library folks, they will tell you open access means many, many different things and, and there's a lot to it. But for the journal, what it means is there is no subscription cost to the journal. So it is free to readers um, all over the world. And that's that's become an increasing issue. Anybody who's followed library issues in the US and in Europe, the the subscription costs for many of the paid journals by the big publishers are, in enormous parts of library budgets, um, and often prohibitive for small universities, prohibitive for international universities. So the move has been toward open access. Um, we as an open access journal do ask the authors to bear the cost of publishing because there is still a cost. I mean, mm-hmm. we have a journal management system that does all the hosting, copy editing, the typesetting, and then things that I'm going to say as if I know what they mean, right, XML, indexing, <laughs> the the. Th- the, you know, how they get, how we get DOIs. Um, so there's, there's that cost to publishing and that's um, as well as just the cost of running the journal editorial assistance and um, that. And so that's the, that's the cost that we ask authors to pay. Mm-hmm.
0: Those are usually called page charges, right?
2: Page charges or article processing charge, I think is, is what it's called on the website or page charges. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and this also makes it So if people want to read the special issue, they can just go to cjournal.org and they'll see it, right? And they don't have to worry about, does my institution subscribe to this? Or maybe I don't have an institution or my institution is really, or I'm a student or, uh, Mm -hmm. so that's really exciting. So the special, the first special issue is up?
2: Yes, it is. Um, And articles in the second special issue are there. Um, And there's some great, there's some pieces that are methodological. There's some pieces that are theoretical. So folks talked about um, what is theory? Why do we use theory? What's the background of theory? There's great examples of a range of different methods um, that are up there. So some really, we're super excited about the response we got to the special issue call. Um, And then we've got great regular articles too in, in volume one, issue one.
0: Of which I have one, I must ah. say, for full disclosure.
2: <laughs> thank you, Ruth.
0: Well, you're, thank you. It was an article that I've been thinking about for 10 years. And finally, it's like, I have to get this out. So um, I'm very pleased. Um, I'm not the first author, but it, it's something I've been playing with for a long time. So I think your response really shows that, uh, engineering education is ready for your journal. You know, when you have a call and then like you get so much response of such high quality that you need to have a double special issue that is, is really cool. Um, for so long, I think engineering, well, when engineering education started, um, People, you know, just in engineering education, just borrowed theories from other places. And now we're at the place where we can create our own Mm -hmm. theories and our own methods. And that's fabulous. Um, Do you want to say a bit? I know you when we had our planning meeting that figuring out uh, certain policies and things like uh, word limits and things was important. Do you want to talk a bit either of you about that process and some of the things you had to think through?
1: Yeah, I would. You know, I'd love to. I think um, you know, one of the really fun things about this is Marie and I just are on the same page about things right away when we talked about the philosophy of the journal and how to get organized about it and the things we care about and you know, being at some stage in our career where we maybe could be helpful to the field. We've really resonated I, and I think Marie agrees with that. I, it sure seems like it.
2: <clears throat> I do, um, I do.
1: So we, we talked about page length as an example and that, you know, in, in many journals, we have standard page lengths or, or word counts, maximum word counts of eight or 10,000 words. But those are sort of historically normative, but not necessarily rational, um, especially for all the different journal or article types that we would be interested in and that are incredibly common in our field. So if you have a ethnographic research where a a researcher spends three to six months in the field studying a phenomenon and then saying you only have 10,000 words, regardless of whether or not you uh, uh, do a statement of your positionality or whether or not you introduce your methods in some detail, you know, seemed arbitrary to us and it seemed to limit, you know, what a good quality article of, of that nature would include. So our, you know, suggested word count is 12,000, which gives authors a little bit more space for, um, you know, the important things they need to say for their research, um, but we also have published articles, several articles with with longer word counts as appropriate for that, that article type. So I think it's part of our sort of like really trying to think deeply about what the norms are and whether or not those are appropriate and then trying to challenge some of those to provide space to better the field. Um, and and I, like I said, we were both pretty inspired, I think by that impact that we could have. And uh, Ruth, you already mentioned this, but I was so excited when we started to get papers in from all of our issues. And, and, and really we were excited about our, you know, the special issue on methods and theories. Cause I think if we could have made a list of like, Oh my gosh, it'd be sure great if those authors would, would be so gracious to give a paper to us, then there they are sending their amazing work to us. And so it's just, um, we realized that it's sort of an investment when somebody submits their article to a new journal. So hats off to everybody who submitted and thanks so much for, uh, inv- taking, taking a risk on us. And we don't feel like it's a risk, but you know, we understand from the author's perspective, it might be. And, and we felt like that, uh, was a little bit of a nod towards, well, maybe the theories and method papers was a good idea. And there was a little bit of uh pent up, uh, excitement about this. So, um, again, thanks to all the authors for these amazing works that they submitted to us.
0: And I think it's testament to you and Marie as well, Shane, that people trust you. Um, and, you you know, you're right. You're coming out of somewhere new. And we know that for promotion, uh, tenure and promotion, that the tier of the journal is important. So, um People, particularly the newer scholars, will be having to evaluate the place that they're putting their article and people really trust you. So, again, hats off to you folks, too, for being so trustworthy.
2: Well, and, you know, it's interesting because sort of another piece that we had to learn is this whole process of things like impact factors. And and we could probably do an entire podcast on impact factors and their value or lack thereof and all those kinds of things. But, um, you know, working with VT Publishing as a, as a publisher and then with our, so VT Publishing is our publisher, Ubiquity is our journal management system, um, and that's, it's, kind of, I I equate it to Scholar One, but it's also a little bit, it's kind of a combination of Scholar One and some other things because they also run the website, they manage all the journal finances, they send out the invoices, they do the typesetting, copy editing, sort of those kinds of things. But um, just, they also manage getting a DOI and then the whole process of how one gets impact factors, um, which is, you know, for for good or perhaps not so good right now, um, is part of the way we think about our scholarly reputations. And, and in fact, when we have senior scholars in the field who submit to the journal, that increases citations, um, and that increases impact factor and sort of all those kinds of things. So it it feels in a lot of ways, I mean, I, I really echo Shane's gratitude for people who are willing to take a, a chance on this because that's how a journal builds up a reputation and makes space and becomes sustainable is when we have, you know, folks like yourself who who are willing to say, yeah, I've I've got a piece that I'm not sure fits anywhere else, and maybe it fits in C, or I have a piece that maybe would fit somewhere else, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take a chance on C as as a publishing space, and I think that's why too the idea of sort of just all of these decisions and i mean it was everything from like what color do you want your logo to be Mm -hmm. you know to Mm -hmm. um we might talk a little bit about review criteria there's a lot of just learning of where the buttons in the journal management system are because you know a lot of us are used to scholar one and you're like it it should be able to do that thing and i i do you know where the button is help you know Contacting Ubiquity help, the things that it can't do that we'd like it to do, sort of just all of those pieces from, you know, soup to nuts, as my mother would say, of what's our mission, very philosophical, what's our mission to, you know, like, okay, so what's going to be the actual workflow process and what shade of orange do we want the logo to be?
1: So
0: what is your mission?
1: Well, that's a very hard question, Ruth.
0: <laughs> we can cut this out if you want.
1: <laughs> no. I mean, I think uh, I'm just going to shoot from the hip a little bit. And, you know, I think a, a big mission is to sort of improve our field through the type of papers that we publish, through the way we um, work with authors and work with reviewers and, uh, you know, I think it's to it's to better opportunities, to improve opportunities for people to publish things that we think are critically important. You know, this would be a terrible mission statement uh, because people would say, "Well, mission statements aren't four hundred words; they're seven words." But mm-hmm. um, but these are just some thoughts that come to mind. I you know, I think I'm at a stage in my career where I have this enormous privilege of being tenured and promoted and you know whatever financially stable so now I feel like I just want to give back so the work that I do at C is to just be useful to the field so that's definitely my internalized mission that gets me through finding the right finding the right button and see without getting super mad or you know which so I for me it's just helping people get things published and helping them improve their careers.
2: And I think what I would add to that is creating a space for dialogue um, is something really important to me. And I think that even goes back to why we wanted interpretive research to to frame it that way, um, that it's about the space to make meaning um, mm-hmm. and to make meaning in different ways. So and and to to try to generate conversation, discussion, sort of a rich intellectual community space. And and so that means, you know, certainly we publish empirical research, um, a lot of qualitative, but also mixed methods. And as Shane said, sort of interpretive quant or critical quant. So we're interested in papers that move beyond reporting results to making deeper meaning out of results and maybe even making meaning out of the methodology behind the results, which I know a lot of critical quant um, folks think about that dimension, but also, you know, we, we publish lit reviews, um, that, that are probably a little different from a systematic or lit review. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of room for systematic meta reviews or systematic lit reviews, but also lit reviews that are more what I would call intellectual mapping reviews. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of that, you know, everybody knows I come out of a humanities background, um, And so maybe they're a little more like the kind of lit reviews that I was used to reading in which people are really trying to look at the different kinds of things people are publishing in a space, whether that space is conceptual learning or equity and inclusion or design and professional development, Um, and, and map that sort of intellectually rather than systematically. We, we publish articles that are strict theory, um, discussions of theorizing. We, we um, are open to guest editorials that might be position papers, but we also publish commentaries um, and we've had some good commentaries and I've got another one coming out soon on, on the first article we published in which We encourage or people choose to engage in a dialogue with the articles that are already published so that it's not just that an article goes up, it's that we can have a conversation about that. And so thinking about an online community where we can actually talk about the ways in which our field is developing um, is an important part to me of the kinds of articles we accept and sort of the larger mission too. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And I know that um, you're very interested in uh, the larger community of reviewers and how, um, what their mindset is as they're reviewing and the kinds of uh, feedback they give authors. Do you want to say a bit about your philosophy about reviewing and when a paper is ready to be published?
1: Absolutely. Uh, we, um, we, we, I think, want to take what I think of as like intellectual ownership of the review process and be very careful for in thinking about what it means for a paper to be done. So I'll give an example is, is, is uh, we try to avoid uh, situations where a paper might go through multiple rounds of reviews, and then uh, a new reviewer is invited and the new reviewer doesn't think favorably of the paper and make sort of a long list of suggestions, dramatic, you know, significant suggestions on how to change the paper. Um, there's two questions with that. One of the questions is there's an assumption that you would have to address all those things to make the paper better. And that's a pretty big assumption because it's already been through potentially multiple rounds of reviews. And the other sort of related thing is that that reviewer just has so much credence and credibility that we need to sort of be beholden. Right. In a way to like you. We we almost hand over all the intellectual space to that reviewer. And I don't think that's necessarily appropriate because it's a it's an iterative sort of group process by which we which we make papers better. And as an editor, I don't you know, I don't think it's fair to spend a year or more with an author and then surprise them, you know, the significant round of revisions. So if that happens, you know, then I would work with the author and say, you know, here's some of the things I think are important. These may not be quite as important. You know, I'm sorry that there's even these things to address now. I wish we would have found them sooner. And so I think it's really important that we are, empathetic or have perspective where, where the author is coming from and what they're trying to accomplish with the paper and in their life. And, and then also just to recognize like 10 rounds of reviews doesn't necessarily make a good paper. You know, you don't, you, you end up in a space where you're just changing things, but not necessarily improving things. So I, like I said, when, when I think we manage that review process, we take ownership and responsibility for the way that goes. Um, which I sort of like the other things I I'm excited about that and the ways in which I think it might encourage authors to, uh, you know, to submit to see Mm -hmm. and uh, to Mm -hmm. think about how this will how this uh, iterative process will go.
2: Yeah. And, you know, and I think, too, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, started my career as a writing teacher. And so I've been doing that for three decades and and worked as a writer and an editor outside the academy. And and there is that sense. So any, any document, any, any article, any, any book, anything can always be better. Um, Right. We could take any article published in any journal and put it through another round of revisions. And and it's really about, for me, stepping back from that. And this is sort of the, the, maybe the writing teacher in me of saying, what does the author want to say And and when is it at a point that it's now going to make a meaningful contribution and or versus when have we moved into marginal gains? Yes, we could do another round of revision and sure, it would be an inch better, right, or a quarter inch better. Or maybe, you know, sort of I think for all of us, once we're making meaningful contributions in ways that are clear, that's and, and it's saying what the authors are hoping it would say and what it says is contributing to the field. And it's it's got, if it's a method a lot, if it's an empirical study, the methods are making sense, people can follow them, it's, it's sort of grounded. I think that's important. I think there's also a space too of trying to, to work with reviewers. And I, I think, you know, we all, there's always mistakes that get by and a review goes out that you think, ah, oh, shouldn't have done that. Um, But I think across our field um, and across the journals, there's been a lot of conversation about how do we work with reviewers to really help make the review process um, more supportive and encouraging and honest. And, And that doesn't mean that reviewers should lie um, but it also means that right so if a paper's not ready for publication or if it's fundamentally flawed in some ways or if it's if it's that problematic we have to be honest with that but we also have to we, we have to work and I, and I think there's always more work to do as I said you know there have been mistakes and all those kinds of things and we've all gotten you know we all joke about reviewer too right <laughs> um, But how do we treat reviewing? And this is back to my notion of conversation as a supportive process, as a place that that if honestly you don't think it can be published because it's fundamentally flawed in some ways, you have to say that if it can be published, then how do we talk about what the next steps are for the article in a way that's more encouraging? Um, and I think. You know, during the pandemic, it's really hard. Everybody's really tired. All of us, I think are probably on a little bit of a shorter fuse. So trying to to mitigate some of that too. But but again, how do we create a community that is intentional about the, the meaningfulness and the contributions and the significance and I don't know if it's robustness of what we put out there but also respectful of authors and respectful of what people are trying to do and the time and effort and the work that goes into things. Um, and as I said, I know I know there's been mistakes, but I think there's also, we've had a lot of really great reviewers who've done really good work and really thoughtful work. And our associate editors are really thoughtful about what they do as well. And so that's been helpful.
1: I think a, a good example of that, if I could just share very quickly is uh it, you know, an author, a group of authors submits us a paper that they've spent tens or hundreds of hours on, and we put it through the review process, and maybe the reviewers have different opinions on what's important and have extensive detailed reviews, and, you know, Marie and I might spend two to four hours on that article, looking at the reviews, reading the paper, trying to be very thoughtful about how do you make sense of all this, And I think the assumption that, like, we know the correct path forward in two to four hours compared to the authors who have spent hundreds of hours on the paper is we're trying to be very sensitive towards that. So certainly we try to give guidance. Like, I think these points are most important to address. And but we also, you know, always make a note of, you know, like you're the one who's the author of the paper. You have spent a lot of time thinking about it. So, you know, please don't just do a checklist of just fix these things. You know, think holistically about how the paper could get better. Here's some of our thoughts in the way that could go, but you may take or leave some of these depending on the model you develop of of how to step forward. And and uh, I think that as an author. That's good, and I think of Liz as we all develop intellectual property together. You know, sort of like uh, Marie said, empowering the authors through this process is really important because we believe the product will be better at the end as a result of empowering the authors of the papers.
0: There was um, a phrase that came up when we had the the planning meeting. We, I've I've explained to the listeners before we always have a planning meeting before the podcast. And there was something about that um, to read the paper as it is not the paper, the reviewer would have written. Um, And I just thought that was a very powerful statement. I don't know if either of you want to elaborate on that phrase a little bit and what that would mean.
2: Yeah, I I think that's, I I think that's always really important, Um, you know, many, many of the folks who review are themselves published, they've done significant research, and it's always easy to think about how you would have done the study or what theoretical framework you would have done. Right. And, you know, the extreme examples of that are when someone submits a qualitative, you know, a small qualitative ethnography and the review comes back and says, this should have been a large quantitative survey. okay that's not you, you you have to look at the study the author actually did the framework they chose it, they might it might not be the framework you would have chosen but does that framework actually illuminate the issue in a useful and productive way it might not be the methodology you would have chosen but does the does the was the methodology sound was it done well in a reasonable and supported way and does it lead to a level of of insight. And I think I think that's always hard for us as scholars because we're always creating new studies. We you know, we review papers in which we were ex- areas in which we have expertise. So you're always thinking about how I would have done it. But it's really about what did these authors do? Is this useful? Is it productive? Is it robust? Is it making a contribution? Even if it's not the contribution I would have made or the contribution I would have wanted to have made around this topic, is it is it a, a useful contribution? So mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. that's a lot of what that that means, I think for me
0: and And I know hearing you say that when we had our pl- planning meeting uh, a week ago, it made me feel as a potential author and actually as an, an author of one of the papers you've published made me feel very safe. Um, so uh, I, you know, I would hope potential authors feel that way a- as well, that, that uh, their paper is given a lot of respect. Um, I recently took a workshop with a person who's a very well-known author and, um, one, uh, she has a new book out like maybe for 19th book or whatever. And one of the people in the workshop said, oh yeah, it was really great. I skimmed it in an afternoon. And the author herself said, I, it took me three years to write that book you better go back and read that again. <laughs> you know, And she was like, what? You skimmed it in an afternoon. You're not respecting all the work I put into it. It was just, it was really, you know, I don't know that I've had anybody say it that honestly before. And it's kind of like what you were saying of somebody's put in at least tens, maybe hundreds of hours into this. And then, how do you, how do you want your work to be respected and treated and considered? Um, And, and and yes, of course, critiqued, but critiqued with empathy.
2: And I think, you know, I have to say there are going to be times when we're going to fail, you know, and I can think of some where we, we were not living up to the ethic that we've talked about here um, because we're human. um, And, and that happens. Um, But I, but I also hope, people feel like they could come back to us and say, Hey, you know what? This didn't feel good. Um, and maybe, and, and we can learn from that because I think we're all, you know, as anybody who works in a journal knows, um, journal editing, associate editing, reviewing is always a service. Um, and, and so in that space, we're all, we're all doing the best we can. And, and I think there's an ethic that we want, um, And none of us ever sort of live up to that completely, but I think it is, it's what we want to be able to do. And when we don't do it well, we try to learn from that and move to the next step. Um, And I think that's a place too, where um, Shane and I try to be approachable. Um, Given the size of the journal right now, we, we really try to be people that you can email and say, here's an idea. I'm thinking of this. Is it suitable for C? Would this make sense? And we'll say yes, or we'll say no, or we'll say if, it could be if it did these things, um, maybe not if it does these other things, given the, the mission of the journal. I mean, you, know, you can go to the website and read our official statements about that kind of stuff. But if folks are interested, but uncertain, we would always encourage people to email us as well. And if they get comments back that they feel like we're not great, they can and should email us back as well, because we'll learn from that moving forward and we'll work with our associate editors to, to try to see what we can learn.
0: So I always like to end with uh, some advice and what would your advice be to people who are listening to this or thinking about, hmm, maybe I could submit an article
1: well i mean it's an easy one submit (laughs) please we would we would love to uh we would love to review your article and we would love to publish your work and i mean so i think that's the that's the lazy but but very truthful and honest uh response to that um i think iterating what marie just said you know if you have an idea send it to us and we'll be as honest and productive as we can with you to see if it's a good fit for the journal. And then if it is to sort of work with you throughout the process until the end to come up with a good paper. Um, I would also maybe somewhat selfishly say, like, look at some of the amazing work that people have submitted to see. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm a little hesitant to use these as examples because we have many, many good papers, but some of the Papers on theory that analyze those theories or methods are just incredibly in depth. And, you know, I read some of them and I, I was uh, I, I learned so many new things about that particular theoretical approach that I wasn't aware of and how they're appropriate for engineering education. So I would say submit work with us. And then, you know, if you have a chance, read some of the amazing work that our our gracious authors have uh, have uh, 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 submitted and, and published with us.
0: Marie, would you have additional advice?
2: I don't know that I could add anything to that. I mean, I, I think I would go back to, you know, if you're thinking about us, we we do want papers that move beyond reporting results to making meaning of those results, to being intentional about um the methodology, the theoretical or conceptual framework that, that sort of guided this work, the, the goals of the paper, sort of, you know, all of those kinds of pieces that we all expect, but um, beep, be part of the conversation, and if uh, if one of the papers in the special issue or a regular issue has been really interesting to you, we're also open to commentaries on that. Um, you know, short papers, a couple thousand words that extend what's already been published, um, that that put us in dialogue. And as as I said, we've got a couple of those, um, and you know, the other kinds of papers beyond the empirical, mm-hmm. lit reviews, mapping those kinds of pieces. We're excited. It's, it's been an adventure, um, you know, launching your journal and, and trying to run a journal, a new journal through a pandemic, not something I would recommend, but doing it with Shane Brown, that I would recommend.
0: <laughs> I
1: got you, Marie.
0: <laughs> well, I want to thank you both, both for uh, being on Research Briefs today and telling us more about C and also, um, Really, your big-heartedness, your desire to um, contribute to the field, and the care with which, and the respect with which you uh, ha- work with the authors—it's—it's um, really very, very inspiring. So, thank you both, and I'm—I'm I'm going to be going to cjournal.org and I'm—I'm uh, I'm dying to look at the special issue particularly. So, Fabulous. thank you very much. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you, Ruth. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. The transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.